Amen. Well, Second Peter chapter 2 this morning, you have a copy of God's Word, Second Peter chapter 2 this morning, and if you're using the Bibles provided there by the church, it's on page 1080, Second Peter, second chapter, and uh, those of you who are uh, wearing your mask, if, if you want to take those down while we listen to the sermon, you're able to do that, you're not singing, you're separated, so you're good if you'd like to take that mask down, and uh, that way, I mean, bank robbers need preaching too, too, but uh, it looks like I'm preaching to bank robbers when everybody's got their mask on, so. Uh, uh. <laughs> well, since Donald Trump became began running for the presidency, we've heard a lot about fake news, and while some people argue against that term, there have been cases where news stories turned out to be at best inaccurate and sometimes completely fake. F news stories that sometimes tell the truth or tell a part of the truth, but they leave out important details or it's written in such a way to lead to a desired conclusion. Of course, if there is fake news, that means there has to be fake news reporters or fake news men. News doesn't write itself. Someone has to write the story and tell the story. But the story has to be told properly. Now, the subject of 2 Peter chapter 2, I mentioned to you last week, is fakes. People who are fake. And in this passage, he's talking about fake uh, preachers, fake, fake teachers, fake prophets. I, I call them fake good news men. They're supposed to be proclaiming the good news of God's Son, the good news that though all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. They're supposed to be proclaiming that whoever believes in Him shall have everlasting life, but that's not what these men, these teachers proclaim. In this passage, Peter is going to describe them. One commentator calls this section a colorful tirade because Peter describes their depravity. He describes their deception and ultimately their destruction. And we need to be very aware that while this does apply to fake and false teachers, it, apl it applies actually to fake people in general. This passage applies to fake, plastic, phony Christians. I was talking to my brother the other day and we were talking about years ago, my mama had one of those bowls on the table with that plastic fruit in it. That was popular back in the 70s. Those plastic oranges, those rubber grapes, those plastic apples or whatever. They looked good from a distance. But if you ever tried to eat one, you were terribly disappointed. Well, that's the way fakes are. In the end, they're terribly disappointing. And so this morning, that's what we're going to study about. If you're physically able, would you stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word? Chapter 2, verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 12. But these, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand and will ultimately, excuse me, and will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery 
and that cannot cease from sin. Enticing unstable souls, they have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption by whom a person is overcome. By him also he is brought into bondage. For it, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to wallowing in the mire. Father, speak to us through your word today. Your word is truth. We bless you for your eternal word and we ask that you use it to conform us to the image of your son, that we'd have our minds renewed by it, our hearts changed by it. There's someone listening today that doesn't know you. Today would be the day of salvation. And Father, give us your word and may you warn us in, in walking in holiness. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Fake good news, men. Well, I want to give you three, tru three truths out of this text that Peter uses to describe these fakes and their relevant for us today. The first thing we see is the depravity of fakes, the depravity of fakes. Peter is going into great detail concerning the uh, sinful nature of these people, uh, the very sinfulness that they're living in. And he gives us a couple of ways we can see that. One is this, it's seen first in their character. He starts this section by saying, but these like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed. Then he says they'll perish in their own corruption. He says they are spots and blemishes. Now just think about these words we read. In a sense, it's sort of shocking. You know, in America, you can't even talk about murderers the way Peter talks about false teachers. You can't talk about people this way. A few years ago, President Trump called those MS-13 gang members animals. You may remember that. And people lost their mind. Oh, he's calling these people animals. Well, listen, let some of those people... Do to your family what they've done to other people's family, and you'll call them worse than that. You can't even call them anything in America, but Peter talks about false teachers this way. These aren't murderers. He says they're like animals that are just, they need to be carried out and slaughtered. That's what he says. Why? Because Peter understood false teachers corrupt minds, they deceive hearts, and they condemn souls. And whether it's theological liberalism where we teach, we teach that the Bible isn't necessarily always true or always right, uh, that, we, that Jesus may be one way, he may, not be, he may not be perfect, he may have sinned. All these things that people have put in the, the, to doubt men's minds, put doubts in men's minds about the Word of God and about the Son of God and about the Spirit of God, all of that. Whether it's that, whether it's Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness, cults, 
that are deceptions from the true gospel, whether it's communism or socialism or Marxism, whether it's universalism that everybody's going to get there, whether it's syncretism, all the religions are basically the same, let us just all come together, whether it's moral relativism, whatever's right for you is right, whether it's humanism that man is the ultimate end, or whether it's pragmatism, whatever works, whatever works, if it works for you, do it. Whatever it is, it's faulty, it's poison, it will destroy the souls and the hearts and the minds of people. Now, Peter says, these people are made to be caught and destroyed. One of my Bible commentators said this, one of the study Bibles said, they are like animals in that they act in ignorance of the realities of death and judgment. Just think about that. Most people live like there's no death and there's no judgment. The only time they fear death is when somebody talks about COVID. That's it. The rest of the time, they don't have any fear of death because there's no fear of God before their eyes. Like animals. People live with no awareness that today, by the, by the time the sun goes down, you may go down before the sun goes down. And it's appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. He goes on, like animals, they only react to present circumstances without giving thought to the consequences of their actions. Peter says they're like stains on all that's holy and good. It's a picture of taking like crude oil that's been driven 100,000 miles on an oil change and taking what's left of it and throwing it on a white sheet or a white tablecloth. He says their, 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 their souls are corrupt rotten the word is putrid it means their character is ruined it's their character seen in their character number two their depravity is seen in their conduct conduct almost always follows character now we may do something out of character when you're raising your children sometimes and you get a call from someone and says well so and so did this and you think well man that's not in, that's out of character for them and we all do things at times that are out of character the problem is, if we continue to do those things, then one or two things is true. It really was our character, or it's becoming our character. If you practice it long enough, it'll become who you are. Peter says they conduct themselves in ways that are depraved. He speaks of three or four examples. One, he speaks of their reviling tongues. He says they speak evil of that which they do not understand. The word evil there, speak evil, is the Greek word blasphemo. We get the word blasphemy from it. It means to vilify or to speak impiously. Peter said they had already, he said they spoke evil against dignitaries. And here he says they speak evil of the things they do not understand. He's, re he's referring to spiritual things. They speak evil of angels. They don't believe in the angelic. They don't really believe in the demonic. They don't believe in the second coming. You get over into second, chapter 3, he's going to talk about these people scoff at the second coming of Jesus. They don't really honor the holy name of God. They don't honor the name of Jesus. They don't honor the Holy Spirit. They minimize the spiritual realm. Many people teach the Bible like it's just a handbook to help you have a better life instead of the revelation of God so you can know the God who created you and you can have a relationship with Him and you can spend eternity with Him. It's not just about you living a little better down here, man. It's higher than that. Some people treat the Bible like it's an issue of a magazine you get with some self-help tips in it. It's the God of heaven revealing himself in the written word. So these people minimize spiritual things. Secondly, he says they not only have reviling tongues, they have lustful eyes. Verse 14, he says they have eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin. 
It's a powerful phrase. MacArthur says this, John MacArthur says, Having eyes full of adultery indicates that these spiritual frauds no longer possessed any moral self-control. They could not even look at a woman without viewing her as a potential object of their adultery or fornication. Put simply, their lust was overpowering and insatiable, an appalling form of lasciviousness that was brimming with sinful desire. You know, if you study the cults, particularly in American history, you will find that some of the major cults, their teachers, their leaders, their founders were all involved in sexual immorality. Joseph Smith and the Mormons, polygamy. Jim Jones, David Koresh was always involved with some form of sexual immorality. Now, that's not to say that every pastor or every teacher you ever known that fell into sexual sin was a false teacher. There have been pastors who taught the way of truth and they fell into sin. My pastor, the pastor I was saved under, fell into sexual immorality. What does that mean, preacher? That means they're sinners. That's what it means. It doesn't mean they're false teachers. It means they're sinners. True teachers are still sinners. It also reminds us of the danger for anyone. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 and 13 says this, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except as such as common demand, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. We all face temptations. Our God is the one who delivers us. It may be the temptation to sin in this way or that way, to quit, to give up before God says it's time. Whatever it is, these people fall. Now, when a true teacher falls, they're removed. But when a false teacher, they never fall unless something drastic happens. Let me just think about the history of these people that we talk about. David Koresh, he fell in a burning flame in Waco. Jim Jones, look what happened there. They killed all these people. All these people killed themselves. But they continued on in that sin, just continued on. There was never any repentance. So this is the difference. The third thing he describes is their shameless behavior. They have a reviling tongue, lustful eyes, and shameless behavior. He says they count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. And he says they carouse in their own deceptions while they feast with you. This carousing is a picture of sort of loose living, inappropriate living, shamelessness. Have you ever seen a day when Americans are less shame, more shameless than we've ever been? I mean, we're just, it's shameless what we see. We're, there's no shame. Well, this describes these people. Now, it's interesting the way Peter describes it. He says they carouse in the daytime. The Bible uses night and dark as a picture of people do things at night they wouldn't do during the day. And by and large, that's generally true. But listen, when people lose their shame, they start doing what they used to do at night in broad daylight. They start coming out of the closet. They start parading what they used to hide. This is what these people are doing. He says, they come to your love feast, and the love feast was a meal the church would have, and they would have the Lord's Supper, and they have a big fellowship meal, and they would, they would express their love for God and their, lust, their love for one another. And he says, these men show up, and they're living lewd, living lewd lives right before you while they come to God's sacred table. They're They're shameless. When they teach, they never mention, they may never mention sexual sin while they lust after the women around them. They lower the standards of holy living. Be careful when you go to hear somebody preach and you're never called to holy living. Holy living's not popular, but it's scriptural. To call people from sin 
is not popular. They, they lower the standards of holy living while they model lewdness and greed and worldliness and immodesty. You know, we've gone in America to such a place. Listen, we used to be shocked when we hear of pastors leaving their wives for other women. Now we hear of pastors leaving their wives for other men. And now we hear of pastors leaving their gender. You heard about the Ontario pastor who came out to his congregation as a transgender woman back in June. He calls his name Junia, June Joplin now. He was the lead pastor of Lorne Park Baptist Church in Ontario. And during an online sermon on June the 14th, he said this, I want, to tell, I want you to hear me when I tell you that I'm not just supposed to be a pastor, I'm supposed to be a woman. My friends, my family, my name is Junia. You can call me June. I'm a transgender woman and my pronouns are she and he. Well, the last time they saw him, he was a man. So the church took a month to decide what to do. That was the first sign that there was a problem. Then 52 to 48%, they voted to, to remove him. He says, well, she, she, he, whoever says they got more preaching opportunities in Canada and America now than, they, than, than he ever had. This is where we are and this corrupt conduct. The third thing is seen is in their covetousness. In their covetousness, in vo verse 14, Peter says they have a heart trained in covetous practices. Back up in verse 3, when he first introduced them, he said, by covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. Not only are they sexually immoral but they're greedy for money sex and silver seems to always be around these people it seems to be a great desire of the false warren wearsby said this at the expense of those who support them the the apostates enjoy luxurious living in our own society there are those who plead for funds for their ministry yet live in expensive houses drive luxury cars and wear costly clothing there was one of these tv preachers a few years ago like two years ago got on tv and pled for money he needed a private jet to fly around the country and do ministry. Wearsby said, when we remember that Jesus became poor in order to make us rich, their lavish lifestyle seems out of step with New Testament Christianity. And it's interesting the word Peter chose here. He says their hearts are trained in it. It's the word for a gymnasium. It speaks of athletics. It speaks of doing this over and over. They train their hearts for these desires of the flesh. John MacArthur again says, Without question, Peter understood that their actions were not accidental. Their offenses were crimes of premeditation, not momentary lapse of judgment. See, we have momentary lapses of judgment. That's out of character. But when it's premeditated, that's because it is our character. As masterminds of sin, the false teachers had planned their attacks and purposed their hearts towards sensual and materialistic means. How does a person do this? How does a false teacher do this? How does a person in the church do this? How does this happen in a person's life? Well, ultimately this, they resist God. They keep resisting God. William Barclay said this about it. He said, they have deliberately fought with conscience until they have destroyed it. They have deliberately wrestled with God until they've gotten God out of their life. They have deliberately struggled with their inner feelings until they have strangled them. They have deliberately trained themselves to focus on forbidden things. Their lives have been a dreadful battle to destroy virtue and to train themselves in the techniques of sin. It's very dangerous. This is why the Bible says in James 4, 7, 
Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That's the, that's the pattern of victory. We all have temptations. We're all tempted. No temptations overtaken you except such as common to man. We just read it. You're not the only one being tempted that way. You and I have to determine, am I going to submit to God and resist the devil, or am I going to submit to the devil and resist God? This is what it is. This is the choice I have to make. Am I going to submit to God and resist the devil or vice versa? Am I going to continue to resist God? And when I do, I am submitting to the devil. These men submit to the devil long enough that they're overtaken. It's also seen, number four, in their crookedness. The Bible says here in verse 15, they have forsaken the right way and gone astray. They got off the right path. You know, human beings have their own way of thinking about things what's right proverbs 16 25 says there is a way that seems right to a man but its end is the way of death there are going to be a lot of people who perish and all the way to perishing they're going to think they were right they're going to think they were right they're not going to have enough humility to accept the truth of god they won't listen to anyone tell them they just continue down this way that seems right but it's an end of death now, it's not that these people just teach the Bible falsely. The problem is, in their own life, they left the way of truth, how they were personally going to live. And Peter gives an Old Testament illustration here. He speaks of Balaam in verse 15 and 16. Balaam was an Old Testament prophet. You may be familiar with him. He's found in Numbers 22 through 24 is the heart of his story. And Balaam is a classic example of a prophet who was motivated by profit. You got it? A prophet motivated by profit. Now, if you remember the story, Balak, the king of Moab, the Moabites, tried to hire him to curse Israel. And at first he resisted, but his heart was so desiring of the wages of unrighteousness that he went along. So he goes and he tries to curse Israel. And you know what happened, don't you? God wouldn't let him. He tried to do it, and every time he tried to curse them, God had him bless them. Listen, it'd be good if God could keep, would keep us from sinning that way. But the real deal was the motive of Balaam's heart was that he wanted that money. By the way, the way I understand it, each time he, he blessed them instead of cursed them, he still took Balak's money because he loved the wages of unrighteousness. His heart was so greedy and hard that God spoke to him through a donkey. Did you know that one of the best and most effective preachers in the Old Testament was a donkey? That humbles anybody who's doing what I'm doing this morning. <laughs> but I've decided any old donkey will do, so I'll just load her up. So in the process of counseling Balak, uh, uh, Balak though, Balaam realized he couldn't curse him. So what he did was, he tells Balak that though he couldn't curse Israel, he could get Israel to curse themselves. He could tempt Israel. So he tells them, he tells him to tempt them to intermarry with the Moabite and the Midianite women whom they were forbidden to touch. And Balaam is attributed to helping lead Israel astray and they committed immorality and idolatry with those women. And did you know 24,000 of those men died because of it? Numbers 25 tells us. And when you get to the New Testament in the book of Revelation, the, the church at Pergamos, this is what he says, Revelation 2, 14. 
But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. So you thought that was some sort of obscure story in the Old Testament. What he says is there's still preachers today doing this. They're, they're actually preaching a false god and they're lowering the standards where people can live any way they want to. So they lower the standard of worship of the one true God and they lower the standard of holiness that God desires for his people. And Peter sums this section up by saying, you want to know the truth about it? These people are ultimately worthless. They're ultimately worthless. And that's not, that's the, that's not the hardest thing he says about them. He says they're animals. But when he comes to verse 17, it's a powerful statement that he makes. He says, these are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Peter uses two poetic figures here, two poetic pictures. He uses wells and clouds. Now just think about it. A well and a cloud is a precious commodity in the Middle East. In a dry land, a well would be a great thing. But how disappointing it would be to stumble upon a well and take that bucket and lower it down expecting to hear a splash instead of hearing it to hit rock hard and realize the well's empty. And Peter says these people come before people and they look at them like these, this person's going to offer me the water of life. These, this person's going to offer me something refreshing for my soul. And he says instead they offer an empty bucket. He says they're like a cloud in a dry land. If you, you know, we've got, we're not this year. We've had a lot of rain, a good bit of rain this year, but there have been seasons when we're dry. And off in the distance, we see a cloud, and it's dark over there, and we're over here saying, come on, come on, come on. And we're hoping it comes, and we see it get a little closer. And how sad it is when all of a sudden the wind changes and it blows this way, or it blows that way, or even worse, it comes right over your house. And I've stood out on my back deck doing this, waiting for it to rain, Watch that thing hang out for a while, nothing happens, and then she's gone. And my grass is still just as dead, and the, the, the area is still just as dry. See, it had a promise that it couldn't fulfill. And he says that's what these people are. People go to them for spiritual help. People go to them for spiritual truth, and they are left empty. They're worthless. That's the depravity of these fakes. The second thing he says is the deception of the fakes. The fakes deceive others to believe falsely and live corruptly. Now, how do they do this? Well, he says they entice the unstable. By enticing the unstable, Peter says enticing unstable souls. This is an interesting word, this phrase enticing. Guess where he gets this metaphor from? Fishing. Anybody remember what Peter did before the Lord called him? He was what? A fisherman. So Peter's using a fishing analogy and he says... What it is, it's like to get these animals, I mean, to get these people like you would fish with a bait. You throw something out there so you can hook them. You get them on the bait and you just drag them in. And he says they're unstable. The word for unstable means they're not set fast or not firmly fixed. These are people who either are new in the faith or who are around the church, but they're not grounded in God's word. They don't know the Bible. They don't read the Bible. This is why it's very important for you to read your Bible and understand it and stay in it every day. You know, most of these cults like Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, were started with people right out of the church. David Koresh's bunch, all these people were church people. 
Many of them, I remember when I saw the article about that, how many of them died there, and all of them had a church affiliation. Methodist, Baptist, Pentecostal. But they were all led astray, not knowing the Word, not being grounded in the Word of God. But not only are they unstable spiritually, they're unstable in every other way. They're vulnerable. Many people today are overwhelmed by life. They're overwhelmed by the pains of life. They've been abused. They've been mistreated. They've been abandoned. They've been left. Some people are lonely. Some people feel like no one loves them. And these people are able to, to manipulate them. They entice them. How do they do that? He says, by speaking great emptiness. By speaking great emptiness. Verse number 18, he says, they speak great swelling words of emptiness. That little phrase, great swelling, is a Greek word, it's huperonkos, uh, huperonkos. I like that word. It sounds like testosterone word. It sounds like huperonkos. That's, that's all I got. That's as deep as I go. But it's interesting because of the picture. Just think about it. It's a picture of this muscular word. And Peter says, but when you look at it, it's empty. They sound so big and so strong and so mighty, but the words are emptiness. Great, swelling words of nothingness. The King James calls it vanity. They sound good and they make sense to the human intellect, but they're devoid of theological truth. They're devoid of what these people really need to change their lives. They might give them three or four steps to better this and better that, but they don't reveal the living God to them. And because... They are empty themselves, remember? They're wells without water and clouds without rain. They have nothing to give these people. They appeal to the flesh, he says in verse 18. They allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who actually escaped from those who live in error. Think about how many sort of gospels we have in America. We have the prosperity, health, and wealth gospel. Why? Because you can allure people through the lust of the flesh. They want to hear about money. They want to hear about gain. They want to hear about all their problems are going to be behind them. You have the happy life gospel, our, my best life now gospel. They want, they want their best life. They want to get out of the stress of life. They want to get out of the hard things of life. Well, who doesn't? They have the sexualized gospel. You know, there are churches. I remember a few years ago watching the news one night, just minding my own business there. And... Uh, the news came on. They were doing a story on one of the local churches, and one of the—I don't even remember the name of the church—but the pastor was on there. And every year he does a sex series, and it's usually pretty in-depth and graphic. He said, and it's our biggest attendance every year. People invite their friends. We'll fill the place up. Why? Because we were luring through the flesh. Now you got pastors, well-known pastor and speaker and author, this week repented of the ancestor's sin of racism. Repent of their ancestors' sin. Why? Why? Because that's, that's what the tickling ears want to hear. People want to hear that you're going to repent. Of, Listen, I got enough sins, man. My ancestors are gone. They've dealt with that with God. I got enough to deal with my own, brother. I don't need to bring anything up that didn't belong to me. I got my own issues to deal with. But what is that? Why you do that? Because that's what the people want to hear. That's, that's, that's what the Bible says is itching ears. Give them what they want to hear. The problem is, it'll change in a while. They'll want something else. It'll want something else. 
MacArthur says this, they do not care about bringing truth to people's minds. Instead, they target people's lust, offering a carnal, feelings-oriented message that feeds the sensual instincts of its hearers. And I feel good about it. And they do it with false promises. He says in verse 19, while they promise them liberty. So they promise, listen, if you give to my ministry, you'll have financial liberty. You, do, you come here and do this, you'll have liberty in this you'll have deliverance in this but ironically peter tells us they themselves are slaves of corruption they themselves are overcome they promise liberty but they're a slave to sin remember what jesus said in john 8 34 he who sins is a slave to sin they are practicing sin themselves they preached others a better way of life without offering others real redemption this message glenn spencer says Offers the world a religion of no repentance, no righteousness, and no rules. That's what people want. No repentance, no righteousness, no rules. But it's also a religion without redemption and regeneration. You can get a best life now, but if you stand before God without Him, it's all downhill. See, these people have knowledge without knowing. They know things without knowing God. This is the very scary thing. They themselves are deceived, therefore they deceive. They deceive others because they themselves are deceived. It's not that they know Jesus personally and they lie to others about Him. Anybody that knows Jesus personally wouldn't lie to others about Him, would want others to know the truth, whether that truth is popular or not, whether that truth would tickle their ears or not. You just want them to know the truth. I want them to know God so loved the world. I want them to know whosoever calls on His name shall be saved. I want them to know that who warned you to flee the wrath to come. But these people don't know Jesus because they're deceived. Paul describes them in 2 Timothy 3.13. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. In other words, it's going to get worse and worse. What they faced is nothing to what we face, and what we face may be nothing to what's coming. Remember, the Antichrist is going to have a false prophet that's going to be with him. 2 Thessalonians says that God's going to send a strong delusion upon the earth. Because men rejected the truth. So it's going to go from bad to worse. Now verse 20 is an interesting verse. I want us to think about it just a second. It says, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are entangled again in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. What does this verse mean? Does it mean that they can lose their salvation? I thought we believed in the eternal security of the believer? Well, we do in the truly born again. It's an interesting phrase here because the idea here is they were in the church. They have knowledge and awareness of Jesus in a mental ascent, but not in true saving repentant faith. See, they're in the church and they begin to follow the church's teaching on morality and life. Some of them grew up in the church. This is why people are always shocked when someone who grows up in the church and they go off and commit some heinous sin and they turn into some awful wicked, they turn to some awful wicked lifestyle and people are surprised. Well, they were, they were such a good person. Well, they knew, the, they knew the truth, how they should live. See, these people knew how they should live. And because they were in this church, how do you think they get to be teachers? You're not going to get to be a teacher if you live opposite of the church. So they live. But the problem is, they had a form of godliness but denied the power. The inside heart wasn't really changed. 
They denied God while they kept this moral teaching. Listen, there's a certain amount of of accountability when you're in the church when your family's in the church and you live a certain way for a while but then if you're not saved that sinfulness will begin to work its way out of you and their inward sinfulness was never dealt with with at salvation this is why we must understand salvation is not some outward thing it's not walking an aisle it's not getting baptized it's not signing a card it's being born again when god comes to live in you and he cleans up who you are on the inside and he gives you a new life and a new start and a new hope there's a new you because you're a temple of the holy spirit but these people never have that and unfortunately you can be in church and dot all the i's and cross all the t's Nobody knows until it starts happening. Finally, the destruction of fakes. This passage is full of warnings from start to finish of their destruction. He speaks really of three ways that they face destruction. There's destruction morally. He says they have eyes full of adultery. And that, that phrase, they cannot cease from sin. In other words, morally, their character is so destroyed they can't stop. They're addicted to it. They're, they can't stop. It's overcome them morally. And he closes out this section with this uh, true proverb of dog returns to his own vomit. That's Proverbs 26, 11. It's a graphic, terrible picture. And then he uses another uh, phrase about a, saw, a sow wallowing in the mire after having been washed. Well, listen, God never calls his people dogs or pigs. His people are always sheep. Dogs, by the way, were not the household pets that you have around your house. Not the little dogs that people carry through the drive through at the bank and the bank ladies give them little bones and stuff. And It's the craziest thing I've ever seen, man. We, when I, listen, I used to take my kids, who used to have little suckers at the bank that give your kids a sucker, remember? Now I'm like, no, my grandkids does not want a dog biscuit. <laughs> That's not those type of little dogs. Beefy and... Fido or whoever else it is. These dogs were half-wild mongrels. Dogs were dirty, diseased, dangerous. They lived on garbage and refuge. The Jews treated them with disgust and contempt. And remember, the Jews hated the Gentiles. So what did they call the Gentiles? Dogs. There were no household pets that were dogs. In the Old Testament, you see dogs eating destroyed bodies. So Peter is describing, really, with this and the saw and the pigs, the ultimate in filth and uncleanness. And their lives are ruined because of it. Michael Green said this, as he started out in pursuit of pleasure, this false teacher, in the end he loses even that. You know, you can sin so much that you lose the pleasure even in sin. What he enjoyed for a short time ultimately ruins his health, wrecks his constitution, destroy, destroys his mind and character, and begins his experience of hell while he's still on earth. You can sin so much, you ruin your own life, and you can't get out of it. This is what happens. These people, because they turn back, demonstrate they never were truly gods. Their moral corruption is through and through. Secondly, not only destroyed morally, but spiritually they knew the truth about Jesus. In verse 21, it's a strange statement. It's a powerful statement for if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, he says, uh, how, to be overcome by it. He says, they are again entangled. 
And then he says in verse 21, for it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness. Imagine it would have been better for them not to have known. Why? Because they knew the truth about Jesus in an insincere and superficial way. People treat the gospel in insincere, superficial ways. I can't tell me how many people I've witnessed to about their soul and they say, oh yeah, I've done that. Oh yeah, I've done that. It's kind of like, well, I joined the Y, uh, I'm on a diet and I got saved. All that's equal. That's an insincere and superficial way to think about the life God gave for you. These people knew about Jesus, but they never had their hearts cleansed, their minds changed, and their souls saved. And the sad thing is, for many of these people, what Peter's saying is, salvation was now pretty much out of reach for them. After they falsely confessed Christ, these people would never be inclined to trust Him. And not only that, their knowledge and experience of the Christian life will make them more accountable to God. A person who's raised in church, raised in a Christian home, raised in a deacon's home, raised in a pastor's home, and rejects the Lord will give a greater accountability to God. These people would have the great accountability of being raised under the truth or being in the truth. This is why he says the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. Finally, destruction is eternally. Again, listen to some of these phrases Peter uses. It's so in-depth, I just pulled a few of them out. He says, they're made to be caught and destroyed and they will utterly to perish in their own corruption. Remember, God so loved the world that whoever believes in Him shall not perish. Here Peter says, these people will utterly perish. He says they will receive the wages of unrighteousness. What is the wages of sin? Death. Say it again. The wages of sin is death. There it is. They're going to receive death. He says they are accursed children in verse 14. It means they're under God's curse. In verse 17, he says this, For whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever? It's a picture of there is no hope for them. It is reserved for them. So what does this mean for us today? Let's close this way. Well, it means, number one, there are still false teachers and false doctrines we must be aware of that can mislead us, especially if you're not grounded in God's Word. Let me tell you something. You better not just rely on me studying the Bible. You better rely on you studying the Bible. Too many people rely on the preacher doing all the studying. But secondly... These people represent all people in our tendency to be fakes. Human beings have a tendency, especially in social circles, to be fakes. I know we're having to wear masks for COVID, but we wear masks at church a lot. We don't want people to know where we are. We don't want people to know what we're going through. We don't want people to know our sin. We don't want people to know our, our unbelief. We don't want people to know. So we've figured out how to, how to look the part, how to play the part, how to be part of the church without being saved. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So we tell ourselves, well, I'm good. Uh, I, I believe in Jesus. I live a good life. I'm a good person. I'm even going to church for God's sake. Preacher, what are you concerned about? Last Sunday afternoon, I was on Twitter just looking around. I follow a bunch of preachers on Twitter and try to encourage them and they encourage me. And I saw tweet from a pastor I don't know him personally just follow him on Twitter and he said this something to this effect 
He said, God moved in our church in a very unusual way today. He said, we had eight people saved. He said, three of them were church members. You know what God did? He revealed some fakes. That's what God did. This is why we closed with this verse last week. This is why we're closing with it now. Those of you listening at home, look at this verse. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. It's not my job to test you. It's my job to test me. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. Listen, don't ask yourself, have I been baptized? Can I remember walking the aisle? Can I remember joining the church? Is Jesus Christ in you? Does Jesus live in you? Is he a temp- are you a temple of the Holy Spirit and you know God lives in you? All this other stuff is periphery. It's extra. It's on, the, it's on the edge, man. It doesn't matter. Getting baptized is good only if Jesus lives in you. All this other stuff, being a part of the church is good if Jesus lives in you. Is Jesus in you? Are you a fake? Listen, most of us fake ourselves out. We've got to get honest with God. You're listening today, home, and Jesus Christ isn't in you. He can be. You have to receive Him. You have to repent. You have to believe. 